Hello, and welcome to the Host Dispatch. Today, we have a very special guest, Claudia Delfina Cardona, winner of the Fall 2020 Host Publications Chapbook Prize. Claudia is a talented poet born and raised in San Antonio, Texas. In this episode, Claudia tells us about her collection, What Remains, the experiences that inspired those poems, her philosophies as an artist, poets who have influenced her, and much, much more. We will be virtually hosting the book launch for What Remains on Saturday, October 10th at 7 p.m. It is free and open to all. Please join us in celebrating this beautiful book with a reading and virtual party you won't want to miss. You can find more information about the reading on our website at hostpublications.com, on Instagram at hostpublications, or at malvernbooks.com. We are so honored to publish this chapbook by such an amazing writer and are starstruck after our inspiring conversation with Claudia. We hope you enjoy this interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Claudia. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about poetry. Yeah, that's our favorite topic. (laughs) So everyone listening to this podcast does not have the fortune to see that you are glowing. How does it feel to have held your chapbook finally, um, to have signed some copies? And by some, I mean about 80, 80 copies, 80 pre-orders. What was that feeling like? It was really surreal. It still feels surreal when I like look at it and look through it. Um, Yeah, it feels like these poems have just lived in me for like years. And so I don't know, seeing them like on the page, like printed, and obviously I've seen them in print before, but like all together, it feels like I'm birthing something, but also letting go of something at the same time. Like I'm letting go of this like era or time in my life. And at the same time, it's like for the first time, people are gonna see this book and all these poems together. It's just, it's a really weird feeling, but it's really cool too. It was really cool signing all the books and seeing all the copies. And like, I was thinking of how to like sign my name all day. It feels it feels really weird in the best way. And I'm just really happy at, about how it came out. Um, the design is like beautiful. Uh, the fonts are amazing. I love the like title cover font a lot. So yeah, it's just <laughs> it's incredible. And I'm just really proud of the work that y'all have done on this book and how it all came together. And I feel really lucky. So do we. Yeah, and isn't it so interesting the way that feels when these poems kind of leave your body all of a sudden and become this thing that other people get to hold? It really is like a birth in that way where it's still yours and you get to hold it too, but it gets passed around and experienced by other people. And that can be really scary. And Mm -hmm. also it's the most beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah I feel like it oscillates between I mean I I guess 
excitement can be in the form of both like an anxious feeling and a more happy celebratory feeling. And it's definitely been between those, you know, it's not like it's a memoir or like a novel about my like life in depth, but it has a lot of my life in it. And I guess like thinking, yeah, like, like, oh my God, it's on display for everyone to see. I feel like that's probably a common thing that poets and like writers feel when they publish a book but it's also like you know you're able to like let go of that version of yourself and like those Mm -hmm. poems and like what feelings those poems have I I think about when Ocean Vuong came to Texas State and he talked about um, his poetry book and how he was like, I just see my poetry book as kind of like photographs where it like captures this like moment in time, but those moments are still changing for me, like how I see those events still change. Yeah. Um. So like when he read poems from that book, he like was changing it as he like recited those poems. So like they're still like alive. It's just like the book captures like a particular version and a particular time that those poems, you know, were and existed. Um. But you know, they're still like evolving in a way for him, or at least like the memories and feelings attached. And that's kind of how I like to see it too. Like, it's not like a permanent end stop. It's like still continuous. It's just like a documentation kind of in a really beautiful way. That is stunning. Totally. (laughs) Every poem can change so much just by the little edits we make over time, just by a comma here, or you change one word out for another. So I really love that idea that the poems as they are printed in this chapbook are just one version of themselves, Mm -hmm. even if they don't ever get messed with again or rewritten. um, They're still just like a particular lens through which to see an experience or a moment in time. That's a wonderful thought. Yeah. I also want to point out that like when we were helping you organize this chapbook, that there was within that many stories that you could be telling with this set of poems. And ultimately we decided uh, the journey that we decided to go down was this like return to home with the lens of an adult mm-hmm. ending the chapbook, which I think that was the perfect route to go with this. But, but yeah, there's a story within just how it's organized, um, let alone how you shape every single poem. But it feels good to hold it and to to be able to promote it and to share it with people. Um, we were crushed because of the pandemic. We weren't able to join Claudia at her signing. And we were so sad, but we're grateful that you said you had a friend over to help you with the signing. Um, so I checked in with Joe. So Joe is a publisher for Host Publications. Um, and he drove to San Antonio to drop off books for Claudia to sign and some to keep. And I checked in with him and he was, you know, stuck in traffic. And then he dropped them off. And then an hour later, he was like, on my way home. I was just like, you could not have possibly signed any (laughs) copies in one hour. So kudos to you. Thanks. I mean, I got the text where he was like, oh, I'm on my way back to pick them up. And I still had like, I don't know, 10 books left to sign and like it was really hard with like some of them because I wanted to personalize them and like I have to personalize them if it's like family or like friends 
and like I wanted to mm-hmm. so I was like it's like a hard thing to rush because I'm like what am I trying to tell this person um so it was it was difficult like there is no stopping between when he when I got the books and when he picked them up and uh oh. so it was just it was just consistent um but it was efficient and I got it done so it was good <laughs> And I know everybody's going to feel the love. Everybody's going to feel that love when they get their copies. Yes. I hope so, yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful package. Like, I love the paper that y'all wrapped it in and the postcard and the pencil. My friend was talking about why why don't more poets have merch? Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's a really good question. Um, I think someone was, like, asking Jericho Brown, like, on Twitter about it. And apparently there's, like, some website where it has, like, T-shirts it's like those t-shirts I don't know like what the original is but it's the one where it's like four names and it's like in a Helvetica font those and it was like different names of like I think like black poets um both like modern and old but that was like the extent of it and I was like I feel like there could I I mean I know going to grad school that grad students love a tote bag and (laughs) if they have like a quote from like a poet on there like their favorite obscure French poet or whoever I mean, those would sell out quickly. Mm-hmm. There's a market there, definitely. So I think like stuff like the pencils and the postcards are just like so brilliant. And I love how it all looks together. It's just it's just great. This is the way we'll make our money during COVID. We, we need to start poetry merch because I think it's a Honestly. great idea, too. And you see a little bit of it if you go to AWP. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of disappointing. Um, yeah. And I won't name anything specific. <laughs> so I'm not trying to trash talk anybody. It's just, yeah, the little things I do see, I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. But I wish it was a poet that I liked or. <laughs> yeah. You know, or like in a in a better font or. A better image. Yeah. Something. Um, I think the extent of like merch that most presses do is like broadsides. Um, if you can even consider that merch. Um so, I mean, there's that, but the scope is, like, endless. Yeah. In feeling so sad that we could not physically party mm-hmm. to celebrate the birth of what remains, we were like, we have to we have to give people something in addition to the book to just feel really connected. Mm-hmm. And then the postcards are also a great marketing strategy because hopefully people mail those off or hang them up um, and they'll see, oh, like there's this book and, you know, this is where I can buy it. You know, it's a gorgeous cover and and just get things started that way. But I have a feeling Claire was like, I want to frame this yeah. one right here in our office. And I have a feeling a good chunk of those will just be kept on in little frames or on yeah. a refrigerator. I think that's what's so great about like postcards is that I remember like going to museums and in like Spain and just getting a lot of postcards because it's like having a tiny print of like an art piece or whatever it is and it can also be utilitarian like you can actually mail it or you can like you know put it up somewhere and it's like beautiful like the cover is so beautiful it's so deserving to be like hung up on a mantle or like on the fridge or something because it's great I agree it's beautiful. Anar did a great job. And we love this photo that you sent us. It's Delphina, right? Yeah. 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 Which is a title 
of one of the poems and also your grandmother's name. Um, I love the kind of grainy quality of the photo and the texture that that gives the cover. And it just has this really interesting like vintage look to it that is so captivating. I mean this in the highest regard, but Delphina has very intense Laura Palmer vibes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she does. Um, And I feel like, so I think like as I got older and looked through more photos and stuff, I just felt like a physical kinship to my grandma because I I mean, I kind of look like my father, like a lot of the times if I have glasses, but on my mom's side, I don't really look like my mom so much as I look like my grandma, um, especially when I look at young photos of her. So I liked having that, I don't know, physical ancestry, like present on the cover. Mm -hmm. And I remember like on Tumblr, when I was like in high school, I would get it was like the peak of my like Twin Peaks phase or like, I guess like the beginning. And I remember getting questions, like anonymous questions about, oh, you kind of look like Laura Palmer. Um, And then I took that (laughs) as such a big compliment. And I can definitely see it in my grandma. I think she definitely has more of like the Laura Palmer look in some ways. So that's, that's interesting that you brought that up. (laughs) I've been saying it since I saw the photo, which like, I had designed some mock-up covers for Claudia that were just like wildly different. Um, Kind of having a hunch that I would be requesting family photos because this is a tribute to your life and your family. Mm -hmm. And I had a feeling that some of these cover options might really come to life once I saw some family photos. And you sent over about five or six different options and I just clung to this portrait. And, you know, I experimented with some of the other ones, but I was just like, this is the cover. Um, I don't know how yet, but it is. And with your Laura Palmer poems or your Twin Peaks poems, I just could not shake it. (laughs) (laughs) And you also inspired me and Claire to watch Twin Peaks. And now we're very weird. (laughs) Amazing. Did you know that, Claudia, that we both watched it? Anar told me a little bit, yeah, that y'all both started. That's awesome. Well, I felt like such a nerd when I was helping you edit your poems and there were the Laura Palmer references. And I didn't know what Laura, who is this, because I didn't know the connection between Donna and Laura. Um, just a glaring gap in my pop culture knowledge, which is minuscule um (laughs) so when I was like oh it's from Twin Peaks I have no business not knowing about this any longer Mm -hmm. we both started watching it I watched it from the beginning to the end the full (laughs) original series and the continuation from recent times wow what what an experience and (laughs) I did it in like I mean just while we were making this book it's only been a few months it was crazy I felt insane when I finally finished the very last episode first of all I screamed because I was so angry (laughs) but also um I felt like I was just coming up for air after having been like submerged underwater for months you know finally I can put that badge on my jacket that I have watched all of Twin Peaks and it was great it was super fun (laughs) oh my gosh yeah I can't imagine I mean I watched the first two seasons like 
in high school and had that like long break between that and like when the third season came out. So I can't imagine just like consuming all of that in like a short amount of time and uh, for the first time. Claire is a different person now. That's <laughs> accurate. <laughs> and you're such an influencer. So I'm a big fan of French New Wave. Um, you know, I got the Criterion app. It's great. But I had some gaps in my Jean-Luc Godard film watching journey and just felt so inspired. I watched Breathless around the time that um, we were settling in with your manuscript. And um, I just love how rich in pop culture your chapbook is without it carrying any pretension or, uh, you know, if you don't know or aren't familiar with the reference, like you could still gather enough context to be satisfied and enriched by the poems. But um, yeah, do you want to tell us what other pop culture references inspired this collection? Yeah, I think that, like thinking about references, I always love a reference in a book or a movie because it's like leading me down a path of, you know, other things that I can check out. Um, if I like, you know, the thing that I found it from. So I've always been a fan of that. But it has to be done in a way where the like author doesn't assume that the reader knows, which is really hard to do. And I don't even know if I like have accomplished that necessarily. But I think that's why like having like a, a references section in the back so that like those things are like acknowledged. It's easier to use pop culture, I think, because I think there's more access points whereas like if I'm referencing you know a German philosopher um, and their like writings it would be a little bit more difficult and maybe sound a little bit more pretentious I think you know pop culture is just generally considered like low art and so thus it's like just by default I don't think seen as pretentious like I think Twin Peaks could be argued as pretentious but it's like pretty mainstream yeah I don't know I think it's like important to have the things that I consume and that like influence me in my work because it would just feel wrong without it if I was writing something that I really liked without like mentioning the actual thing and like hope to like inspire people to look up whatever it is that I'm referencing and so I think I have like a mix of things in the book like I have a reference to Heaven by Los Lonely Boys which isn't even like <laughs> something that like is beloved by me um or, I mean it's beloved in like a nostalgic way but you know it's not like I'm mentioning it for the sake of like people to look it up <laughs> and then I have um you know I have like the Twin Peaks stuff I have I think I mentioned shoegaze um and like I wanted the references to kind of serve as like a map you know like a lot of the the poems in here are about my teenage feelings a lot of the times or like early 20s feelings and experiences and I wanted that to be in the book to reflect the things that I was like concerned with at the time um, and I think a large chunk of that is like the things that I consumed I like defined myself as the things that I liked um, and was like so preoccupied with like trying to be cool as like currency and I think throughout the book, I kind of, I, I feel like I chipped away from that or try to by like being more concerned with who I am and where I come from and like the sort of person I want to be versus like the more, I guess, superficial idea of 
just wanting to be the coolness for the sake of having that cultural currency. And so I think that's why there's like quite a few references in my book, but I, Anar, I like what you said about how the references are, I hope they come across as like more like open-ended and like more present, more so than like, I don't know, obscured in a way that just kind of assumes that you know what I'm talking about, because that's, I don't like that. It's a very fine line between, you know, doing references in, in a way that's more accessible and then doing it in a way that's just to show off like how smart you are. And I definitely did that um, when I first started writing and I've definitely shifted away from that. Um, but I think those references are like part of that, like history, my own personal history and like how my priorities change. And I think especially when you're, you know, in your teens, you are concerned with like those things and music is such a big part of that. And movies were such a big part of that for me. And yeah, I think that's why they're so present in this book. I feel like the references are working in so many different ways in your poems in this book. And part of it, like you mentioned the Los Lonely Boys song, that is an example, I think a great example of how a lot of times the references are helping to shape and build an atmosphere or a world, a very, very specific one to you and to moments mm -hmm, in time mm -hmm. from your life. And that's so helpful for people who weren't there and don't I don't have a point of reference necessarily so if you give me something tangible like that or like food or mm. all the other little experiences that get kind of cataloged that's really first of all just delightful to read it's very sensory and your poems are very sensory but it's it's also helping me to kind of shape the person in the world on one level um and then I also love the idea that you're like recognizing and I, I know you even mention it in a certain poem uh, the line is trying to be cool uh sweating in summer velvet I think which I love yeah um <laughs> and who can't relate to that you know like who who can't remember a time when we were specifically curating ourselves and sort of testing out different versions of ourselves to see who we are. Um, I find it really relatable and not shallow at all. It's just like the experience of being young. And I love that these poems honor and respect that whole process, um, really without being ironic. I feel like the poems are really respectful to that process and mm -hmm. um, kind of preserve it in a really mm -hmm. beautiful way. Mm. I really like that you mentioned um, about how the references kind of shape that world mm -hmm. because um, I think that's definitely a huge part of why I use them is because like if I'm talking about a specific memory at least it was my initial instinct and in, like intro to poetry to learn that the best poems were quote-unquote universal so to strip them away of like any sort of like timely reference and I think there's like a huge argument about are you like a poet of the now or are you an eternal poet or like a poet of forever mm. meaning that like you know are you gonna like insert those references in your text or are you gonna keep those out to try to keep it universal um, but I think like the times when I've tried to tried to write like quote-unquote universal poems when I was 17 or 18, they were like really awful. <laughs> but I feel like it makes sense, like, you know, why people would want to do that. But I think I remember my dad told me, I don't know what the context was, but he was like, the universal is in the particulars. And I think it's a quote from someone. Yeah. But that's always like stuck with me. 
Because it's so true. Like the more detailed you are about your world, like it doesn't matter what references surround that. It's like the feeling and like the particular experience there. And like the references just like highlight your own specific experience. They don't have to reflect everyone's. And it just like makes it sweeter. I feel, you know, knowing that that song was playing or like that food was eaten like in that time because it just really heightens the experience in the poem, I think. And so that's what I wanted to do throughout my work. And also, yeah, I think like the the process of like starting from like a place of wanting to be cool. I think that when I wrote some of these poems, I was still concerned with those things. And as I was revising, I was like having my own personal revelations about what why am I concerned with these things and like why do these come out in the poem or you know how has my voice shifted and it was like coming to the realization that like I don't really care about being cool anymore I did for a long time um as a way of you know standing out by you know knowing all about film and like there are things that I genuinely love but it's like the the way that I would perform them I think in the poems and in my life and so I think by the time like the manuscript was finished I like was at a different place where I was like you know what like I'm just concerned about like very different things but like I don't want to like bash on myself for being that person I understand why I use those things and like why I wanted to be cool and that's like totally valid and I don't think it's like something to be ashamed of necessarily like it can be a little cringy maybe like thinking of yourself in the ways that you wanted to be cool but it's also important to recognize like why you did that and you know that it's not you're not wrong for it or you shouldn't like criticize yourself for it like it's what felt like natural to you and the the way that you like adapted to your social environment and that's totally valid. Revision in poetry anyway is I think a form of deep therapy so I (laughs) really commend you for digging really deep into those poems and you have to look at yourself again (laughs) again and again yeah it's hard and um I think you did a lovely job working with the poems though to keep them in the moment in which they were written, Mm -hmm. even though the little bits and pieces changed, I feel like the essence of each one was preserved. Yeah, that's, um, it's a really hard thing to do that. I think in revision, I feel like it's my instinct to just, if, if it's a really old poem, I mean, I'm just like so tempted to just scrap it and start from the beginning, but there's things I think to consider about keeping, you know, certain lines to like not lose that essence. It's just really difficult. And I think any poem, I mean, I I can't speak for like all sorts of art, but I know that like when I paint or draw, it's more so of like a experience where I'm just focused in on like the the action itself, but writing poems in particular requires so much introspection. And I feel like I've read it by, you know, two or three poets who have said, like, I know that I wrote a good poem if I feel changed while I'm writing it. I don't know what other art requires that, like, intense therapy and conversation with yourself. Like, it's just so difficult. It's like, like, you can't just sit down and force that either. Like, it's, 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 it has to be organic, at least in some part. Revision is is uh it's a wild experience um that's also very Aries of you to 
continue to consider your individuality as like an evolving and a changing thing. And we are not an astrology podcast, though it does come up a lot. I only mention that because lots of these poems have astrological signs in the titles, even though it doesn't always come up in the body of the poem. So I feel like what that does for me is it just sheds an aura over everything, right? It's like Aries is in here several times, and so I get a red aura from a lot of these poems and that kind of individualistic, sort of like burgeoning creativity vibe. <laughs> uh, just because that's what that word is doing in the titles, it's just creating a kind of aesthetic. Well, speaking of like the Aries aesthetic, I feel like I've been thinking about what Aries aesthetics are like looking at Aries poets I feel like it's an essay I want to write but like looking at poets that so the ones that come to mind are like Jericho Brown Dorothy Lasky um I think William Wordsworth is an Aries too um Maya Angelou Robert Frost all of these poets are Aries and it'd be really interesting to find the poetic connection between them and Frank O'Hara as well some of them I can like very obviously think of like poems or lines from them and be like oh that's like totally Aries but like looking at poets like Robert Frost would be like a little bit more difficult or maybe I just haven't read enough from him but it feels that fire energy is not as present overtly but it would be interesting to like kind of see the Aries ancestry of like poetics and see how these like poets connect that's a very cool idea and you said Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. And still I rise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the quote of Aries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you should do it. That's a cool project. Eventually, when I have when I have time. Yes. I would like to. <laughs> One of um my favorite conversations this year. I know we've all had like zero conversations, but uh, <laughs> when we offered you the Chaplick Prize and we had our initial conversation, I really enjoyed talking to you about authors that you feel like feed you as a poet. And we love collecting recommended reading lists from our authors because it helps us as editors really position ourselves in a place where we can you know, guide you and make those final edits and revisions. Um, can we revisit authors that you love and books that have really shaped you? Yeah. Um, so I think the first one that comes to mind is Sandra Cisneros. A lot of people talk about, you know, House on Mango Street, which is like great. Yeah. But I think her poems are often overlooked and they're like really incredible and really influential. Um, so like looking at the way that she uses like surprise in her poems and the way that she uses imagery um, has always just impacted me. She's a Sagittarius, so she also has that like fire energy. On top of that, you know, she's like Mexican-American. So I always felt this like kinship to her in both those ways. There's this like intensity and like, I don't know what the word would be, but she just doesn't have any, there's like no shame in the poems about her feelings. Um, whether it's her fiction or her poems. So like one very influential story for me was Never Marry a Mexican, which is kind of based on like the myth of Malinche. So the, you know, the story of like Malinche and Cortez having a love affair and um, her being considered like a, a traitor because of it. 
And so the story kind of mimics that. She's like having an affair with um, like a Spanish man and uh, he's married. And just the intense feeling that she writes in that in that story always stuck with me. Um, I think because like I felt so much of that, I think like in my late teens, early 20s, it was like this intense passion um and I never I had never seen that like represented anywhere at least in like the books that I had read up until that point and I it just made me want to do that too um and her poems do the same thing I mean so many of the images are so like almost violent but like also surprising in the way that she like talks about love and uh and I think that's what that's like what shaped the poem in um in my book Parachute that feeling of like I don't know I think like the kind of often fetishized um image of Mexican women or like any Latini woman um is this like enraged or impassioned person and I've always been interested in like well what happens when like your genuine feelings match a stereotype of like what people perceive you to be and she she does that in the work like her passion is there her like anger is there her like vulnerability is there and I thought I mean if if she can do that and she's like one of the most successful like Mexican-American writers like why can't I do it as well and so that was a really fundamental text to my writing um I like read that in college like and I remember like in the bathtub and you know like a lot of the stories in that short story collection Woman Hollering Creek are like set in San Antonio and that on top of like there can be like literature about like the place where I'm from like I I always knew it, it it existed because I mean my dad is a poet and I always went to like poetry events around the city art events I knew it was there but like I had never looked into it because I always like just kind of took it for granted and was also just like confused as a child. Like, why are these people like so obsessed with talking about the city and like their race? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and then as I got older, I was like, whoa, you're telling me like my parents like were around all of these like incredible artists and like writers and I just did not know. Um, <laughs> and that's when I started to like look into more more text about like either like local or like just by Mexican-American writers or any sort of Latino writer. And that was just the Sound of Cisneros short story book was just a fundamental text for me. I also think when I got to grad school, I mean, I had not read that much at all. I just went to grad school because my poetry teacher really pushed me to like pursue poetry and I got in. And uh, I did it because I liked writing, but I didn't know anything about poetry. I mean, I came into like my workshops and people were referencing all of these poets and like talking about Sistinas. And I was like, I literally don't know what y'all are talking about. Um, so once I got into the program and was assigned text by like all these different writers, opened up a whole new world for me. Um, Morgan Parker is like a very influential poet for me. I remember reading There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce and just like I would listen to like every podcast that she was on and hearing her talk about pop culture um, was really interesting to me because I had always been like taught or always had heard 
that it was like not the cool thing to do in a poem um, and it's kind of looked down on. And I could tell the people in my workshop kind of felt that same way. Um, but hearing Morgan Parker talk about how, you know, she was like, there's references in the wasteland. Like you have to like look up stuff to understand that poem, but it's considered like a classic. Why can't people do that, you know, for a Beyonce poem? Yeah. And it's even easier now because we have technology with us all the time. Like it's not that hard to Google something. Um, whereas before it was a lot harder. So I don't understand why it's so like controversial, I guess, to some poets. So, you know, just reading her work um, and the way that she kind of, like her poems move in a really interesting way. I think the way that a lot of poems are written and like looking at endings in particular, is something I'm really interested in and I'm really interested in poets that kind of do something different than just like having the climax of the poem at the end or like a surprising last line because it kind of mimics the, it's kind of phallic in a way. It's kind of, so to speak, there's like, you know, the the coming of the poem at the end. And I, I didn't even really think about that until, I don't know what poet or what panel I went to where they like talked about that. And I was like, whoa this is crazy, but how do you like break it? On top of that, it's like the time constructs too of like, you know, writing in a narrative and like having a beginning, middle and end, which is like very Western. Um, and I think like both Morgan Parker and Dorothy Lasky really do a good job of like subverting that in really interesting ways where like the poem will just like keep on going and then it'll end and you're just like, what just happened? Or like the most exciting line is like at the beginning or like in the middle, um, so texts like that really interest me. Dorothy Lasky, I just like went through all of her books and like I didn't understand a lot of them, but I was still really intrigued. Um, the first poem I ever heard of hers was, I don't remember the name, but it's about hippies. And it was just like really weird. Mm -hmm. I had a really weird voice and I was just like, okay, I need to like check this out. And my friend lent me like all of, all of her books. And I think her book... I think Black Life was the one that really stuck out to me just in the way that she was like very like weird and vulnerable in her poems. Yeah. And she's like super into astrology too. Doesn't come across in her poems a lot, but I mean, she runs the Astrology Poets Twitter and does like the podcast. She's also an Aries with a Scorpio moon. Um, so I was just like really intrigued by her and she has like great fashion as well. Um, so, <laughs> um, I was like, okay, like, I think she's, she's doing really, really cool things. She also has really good essays. She has one called poetry is not a project, which is really good. And then one about color in poetry, which color has always been something that I've been interested in, in poems. And she has like just this essay about her relationship to color in general, and then how it relates to poetry. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is the poem that you were referencing, the first one you heard, is it called um, I Like Weird Ass Hippies? Yes. Yes. Okay, it's that cool. One. Yeah. <laughs> I've read it a long time ago and it mm -hmm. was like on the tip of my tongue. So I had to look it up. Yeah. I like, you know, this is a really funny poem title. <laughs> I Like Weird Ass yeah, Hippies by Dorothy Lasky. How could you not love her? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so good. She also has a Twin Peaks poem in her last oh. book, I think, that came out, or her second to last book, um, Milk, which was really cool. Um, so she's she's a big influence. Um, 
I don't know where I found out about Adelia Prado, but she was a huge influence on my work as well. She's just uh, amazing. I could really see that. Sorry to interrupt. I just sent y'all one of my favorite things to do is read the Sunday routine in the New York Times. If we're talking Capricorn, I love a good routine. Um, (laughs) And I admire routine in other people. And I remember really enjoying the Astro Poets um, with Dorothy Lasky, Sunday routine and Alex Dimitrov. And so I linked y'all. I thought you would get a kick out of what her Sunday obviously used to look. We are in a pandemic, people. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I have not read the full book Milk by Dorothy Lasky, but I have read poems from it. I am probably going to cut this out, but I will never forget like randomly opening that book and reading a poem. And there was a line in the poem, which was my pussy belongs to the books of yore. (laughs) And I almost died. I was like, I love her so much. (laughs) Yeah. That is right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What a weird thing. Like who else can write that line? No one else. Honestly, no one I can think of. It's, it's incredible. Um, she's like super nice too. I like met her at AWP in 2019 in Portland and she like, we exchanged phone numbers. Like she was like just super nice. I had like such good energy. It sends like a lot of, uh, green heart emojis. So nice. I just, I'm a huge fan of her work and her like, just like kind of weird impulses and poems and very yeah. like overtly sexual impulses Mm -hmm. that are present there too um yeah she's cool well there's a natural link to Adelia Prado who you were just about to start talking about who has this wonderful sexual quality I think to her work but they're also very Mm -hmm. religious poems um which is such a fascinating combination yeah she's a gem I I love her work I definitely feel the kinship between the two of you, too. I appreciate that. She is just, I was just blown away by everything I've read by her. Um, I got like her book, Ex Voto, I think, which is like a collection of her her work while I was writing my thesis. Mm -hmm. And it just like opened my eyes completely because it had, yeah, like those very like sexual urges in the poem but it was they were all poems about god and jesus yeah and she like refers to jesus as jonathan i think so she'll be like talking about jonathan she you know she was like i would do anything for jonathan so like it reads as just like a straight romantic poem or ode but it's actually about jesus which i'm really interested in like religious poems for the sake of just um There's like that kind of ecstasy quality sometimes in a poem Mm -hmm. that's present in poems about about Jesus in particular um, that is also present like in like that feeling, that ecstasy feeling, I think, is like mostly present in like texts written by women and Mm -hmm. this like, you know, devotion, this absolute devotion to God. Um, I read this really good essay. I'll have to like find it and link it. It was from a newsletter and it was all about the singer Caroline Polachek, 
her album. I think it looked at her song lyrics. I think it also talks about Carly Rae Jepsen and just like the kind of devotional quality of those pop songs and their lyrics and finding that tie between um, the religious ecstasy of this like overwhelming feeling of devotion to like Christ. And they were just comparing that to like the overwhelming feeling and sensations of like having a crush and what that does to you from like a female perspective. Um, so it was, I really resonated with that. And, and I mean, Adelia Prado like does that so well. And she's also so funny in her books as well. Um, that I was really, I was really drawn to her. Yeah. She's like a jilted lover. Yeah. But her lover is God. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't read those poems in a while, but in my mind, she's always like standing in her kitchen in the morning, like washing some grapes and just arguing with God yeah. and being really heartbroken. <laughs> That's how I think of her work. That's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ex Voto and Alphabet in the Park are like two books that I just love. Yeah. Love, love by her. Um, and then I would say the last big influence on my work, there's two. There's um, Sharon Olds and Carrie Fountain. Sharon Olds, like, Scorpio she like all of her poems are pretty much the same in terms of like form they're all narrative typically and they're all like just free form and she's just like so straightforward but also so there's like this like ethereal quality to like the imagery that she like usually displays in her poems or like the feelings that she mentions there mm -hmm. and there's like a summer I think it was right before thesis like I just read um I think it was like blood tin straw I'm not sure if that's the right order but I mean I was just like blown away and then I just continued to read work by her it was just bowled over every time um so her work was very influential as well and uh and Carrie Fountain I mean I think the first poem I read was when Ada Limon also a huge influence as well came to Texas State and she brought us the poem Surprise um I think it's called Surprise by Carrie Fountain and it was just, it was about surprises in poems. And so it was like very meta. And like, then she was like talking, you know, it goes into like her own life uh, experiences. And then like the poem itself like ends with its own surprise. Yeah. And I just thought it was like so brilliant and cool and like familiar. Um, and I just really loved it. Um, I think we also read her poem, Yes, for my poetry workshop, which is a direct link to Parachute because I was just blown away by her work and her imagery and um, wanted to do that in my work too so bad and she's just I mean she's just so brilliant amazing and like so nice um, as well yeah I was gonna say she's local so have have you two met and everything yeah she had yeah. like a workshop and it was at St. Edward's and um, she was just so nice and has such great style and got to talk to her afterwards and um, I think I asked her her sign. Um, she's a Taurus. I mean, her and Ada Limon are like two of my favorite contemporary poets right now. I mean, I think Ada Limon was like the first poet I read in grad school because we were assigned her book, Bright Dead Things, for my class. And she was coming to Texas State. And I was just like, I felt like someone wrote my poems and they were just like out here. I mean, I wish they were as good as hers. But I just felt this like immediate kinship to her work and just like this familiarity with like every poem, like every poem on the page. I was like, whoa, like this poem's about Spain. I like studied abroad in Spain, lived there, 
well, this poem is about her, like, it mentions like a queer friendship relationship thing. I was like, I feel like I could have also written this poem about like my high school experience. Like, it was just incredible. And like, she's just so, so gifted at making really good endings. Um, She is like who I look to when I like am trying to think of like how to end a poem. She's just like a master at it. And I love her, love her work so much. Yeah, she's great. That's another great essay, by the way. Poets who are masters of the ending. Yeah. That is the hardest part sometimes. It really is. Claudia, will you read us a poem? Yeah, of course. What poem are you going to read for us today? Um, I think I'm going to go with The Summer After. The Summer After. I sat by the river with friends in late May, reading poems and sending baby's breath downstream. In June, I spent my nights walking by kissing Allie, trying to forget my memories like a loose tooth. By July, I spiraled into a summer of drinking out of so many small straws, while a sample of I like it like that echoed in every bar, reminding me that I am somehow still here. Here with Sterling and Melanie, staring at walls full of Cy Twombly splotches that kind of look like pansies. Here in the humidity where I watch the bartender smash mint. Here, outside of someone's apartment, my back against the patio fencing, feeling the heavy bass of a mysterious song reverberate while the sky looks like a broken disco ball. Here at my apartment in mid-August, sprawling out on my mattress, feeling night swirl inside me like a snow globe. Everything feels urgent, and I am not sure why. A heavy sigh propels my heart forward, every moment a pinwheel of light. That is so beautiful. So good. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm realizing that I have not heard you read from... The book. <laughs> I'm sure if it was in different circumstances, we would have, you know, in the past six months, like gone to a reading or put something together, um, heard these anywhere around town. Um, so your book launch is going to be really, really special. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. But I love, I love this poem. Thank you. I do too. It's always so wild to me, even though I know it's going to happen how much a poem is transformed when you hear it read by the poet. I, for those who don't know, <laughs> spent a lot of time in this poem with you and thought I could probably recite part of it myself if I tried. And still somehow hearing you read it, it's I'm hearing it for the first time. It's completely unfamiliar <laughs> uh, in the best possible way. I really mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, this poem has changed so much throughout the course of like this past summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, from like the title to like I don't I think what has stayed the same is like the beginning and end everything else in the middle has like transformed deeply yeah and I think it was like a matter of just like making that summer so I mean it was already like a sensory poem I think but it was like really including the specifics in there and really talking about like where this poem kind of started and like what those feelings were whereas before I think it was like more so like a 
a superficial like I'm done with this relationship and I'm I'm good I'm still out here living my life where in reality it was like more so just I mean there was like some of that feeling but it was like a lot of spending time with friends to like not feel alone and to like heal which is like why I was like I need to mention like that summer is so tied to my two friends Melanie and Sterling and I need to like include them in here and need to include more of like that feeling and those experiences and because that's like so crucial to the poem and like why I even wrote it in the first place yeah I love how even though we move a little bit through time at the beginning going from May to June uh to July this poem now to me feels like one very fluid and continuous moment right so even in in pointing back towards those moments in time it's just so fluid and it just feels like you're kind of floating down a river to me and I don't know how that (laughs) how that works with the healing process but the poem itself feels cathartic if that makes sense yeah totally um I like that idea of the river because it's like present in the poem and I do associate that summer so much with like I think we only did it twice but a few of my friends um we would like go to the San Marcos River during like a full moon around like six or seven and just like sit by the river and um we would bring flowers to like send down or um we would bring poetry books and like read a poem to each other and do like tarot readings that was like really special to me and one of the memories that I definitely associate with the summer um that feeling of continuousness and like the river kind of representing that and um that summer also feeling fluid and so like fast moving even through you know so much like heartache and pain that's like not you know I would say healing is not like a river at all it's like you know I don't know what it would be but it's definitely not linear Mm -hmm. um but it's interesting to look back at that summer and just kind of see it in more of like a I don't know with a fluidity I guess because I'm not in it you know just like how fast those times go and those feelings too that felt so urgent at the time now feel Mm -hmm. so foreign (laughs) That's definitely part of the poem. And that's that's sad, but it's also really lovely at the same time. Like, thank God our feelings don't last forever. Mm-hmm. But that's also kind of devastating in another way. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reading that, by the way. I was so curious what poem you were going to pick. Of course. <laughs> in our previous episode, Kate had asked, if what remains was a fish, what fish would it be? <laughs> Claire answered angelfish because there's like a Stevie Nicks just like sensual (laughs) starlit vibe um I said koi fish but like a school because there's a lot of like there's a family component to this Mm. that is Mm. so important to the to the chapbook but I would say that we can coexist with the two what fish would you say what remains is Mm. That's a really good question. I think those are both really good answers to good representations of the book, both like the angelfish and the koi fish. Um, I feel like I would definitely agree with the koi fish. I would say any sort of like 
iridescent fish with like big fins uh, I feel akin to with this book I wish I knew more fish names I every time I go to H-E-B I like see those fish guides Mm -hmm. they sell like in the right before you like check out and they're like laminated and I really want one so that I can know more about fish I definitely feel either koi fish or I just watched this video this like live stream of some park I think in Alaska and uh it was like a bear in the water and it was like all these fish just like jumping up and going back into the water just like continuously I feel like I would be like 20 of those fish (laughs) just like continuously jumping back into the stream I think it's the bulk it's the school that really yeah the bulk Mm -hmm. of fish (laughs) um I want to launch into just like atmosphere because atmosphere is so important I want to make sure that people that are listening that have your book are prepared. So my next question would be, if you could set a perfect atmosphere, perfect space to read What Remains, Mm -hmm. what would that space be? So I can imagine a few things. I can actually think of like a particular setting, which is um, there's this park where I had my, I think it was my 25th birthday. It's in Martindale, so kind of by San Marcos, and uh, there's nothing really special about this park, Um, but when I had my party there, um, me and Linda had like a joint birthday party and like grilled out, and I had a piñata and had like cascarones and like topos and just like random foods. I picture that sort of setting, or... When you first asked me, I like just pictured like this like space, like maybe like some sort of community space where the floor is like concrete and the walls are white and um, there's those like kind of pink, purpley, iridescent like wall streamers, like some sort of background like that Um, and some sort of like gold tinsel. I also picture a lot of hearts, mm-hmm. um, so some some like Valentine's decorations potentially. Mm-hmm. Since it's October, I would probably lean more into the Halloween decorations because I love Halloween so much. So some of that, I picture like like a crystal punch bowl <laughs> and some pan dulce probably, and maybe ideally there would be like a taco truck nearby some coffee. It doesn't matter if it's like 10 p.m. My family (laughs) always like if it's someone's birthday and you know we're eating cake around like seven or eight doesn't matter like we're drinking coffee still like coffee is like always offered at night for like someone's birthday. So I definitely have coffee. I love that because it's like the family is trying to keep the party going. No one's going to sleep. We all need to re-energize ourselves so we can continue to be together hanging out. Yeah. And it's just like very cozy too. It's Mm -hmm. just like there's something about the coffee and the cake or bread or whatever it is that's just perfect at night. Um, And I would want some sort of like comfortable seating, preferably some sort of couch situation or cushions people on the floor if they would like I feel like a lot of times poetry poetry readings can be a little stuffy in the sense of just like everyone is like completely silent until the end and then there's like you know two questions 
Um, at least that's how all the readings were when I went to Texas State, like, I guess, like, more of the quote-unquote academic poetry readings, whereas, like, I don't know, I didn't necessarily grow up in the slam scene, but it's just really nice and comfortable to be in a setting where, like, you're encouraged to, like, vocally or physically react to a poem when it's being recited. Obviously, there's, like, you know, there's etiquette to that, too, Um, but I've I feel like that setting is more inviting than just like a very like still reading. Um, so that's that's what I imagine for, you know, a non-COVID time poetry event. <laughs> so basically what you just described to us was a lot of like family hangs, you know, with friends, whether it be in the park setting, that really specific setting with your particular like foods and drinks that you love and then also that kind of like nighttime cozy in the house setting and so one of the questions I was going to ask you is how your fam how you feel like your family has shaped you as a writer Mm. yeah that's a really good question thank you for asking I think um they have influenced me like immensely in every way I mean i One of my first memories is being at like some sort of art exhibit. And I'm pretty sure this happens. Like it it also feels like a dream, but um, I remember like being carried. I don't know if it was like my mom. I'm pretty sure it was my mom. And like, I remember being at like some sort of art exhibit and seeing like this painting with like a lot of texture in it. Like the paint was like very thick and wanting to touch it so bad. And I think I did. But my mom was like, you can't touch it. Like, you're not supposed to touch it. Um, But I mean, it just looked, there's like something about like really thick paint that just looks very enticing to touch. And I mean, she worked at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center. So she was like always around artists. She would help out with like all of the events. So like they have a huge Dia de los Muertos event. And she came to my school, I think in like fifth grade and like taught the class how to do, how to make an altar um so like she's always been like kind of emphasizing the cultural stuff um my dad too in his poems they're predominantly about his hometown of Alice and all right not his hometown but I guess where he was raised and his parents and South Texas in general so he's always been like that's always been like his I guess message in his poems is about like the importance of like place and I mean I went to like so many poetry readings that he was at or like you know someone that he knew so that's always been like part of me and I remember like my dad trying to get me to read of human bondage when I was like nine and I just like hated it um (laughs) he would like try to assign this reading to me and like be like oh so did you read the first chapter like let's talk about it and I you know read the first page now I'm just like dang that was cool that he tried to like install these things into me yeah um you know it's like at the time you don't appreciate it and stuff but you know they always just like encourage I mean my mom being the like I think more practical person that she is and also being an artist she was just like there's no money in this like you should look at other options but I I mean, like, I'm awful at math and science, and they're both awful at math and science. I don't know what they, like, expected <laughs> to happen yeah. necessarily. So, I mean, they, they have, like, so many supplies in their house. They had, like, kiln in her house. So she had all this clay. Oh, that's cool. 
Yeah, so like just having those resources, she had like all the fancy like Prisma color markers and color pencils um, that I could use. So I just like was really privileged to like be in a household that really fostered um, that creative experience. Um, we had like a workshop that we ran at our house like one summer, I remember. Wow. And that is something I carry with me like all of the time, like that I would love to do, like if I ever had kids and, you know, with their friends, because um, in the morning it was like my mom would teach like an art class and we did clay. So we would create little sculptures. And then um, in the afternoons after lunch, my dad would teach like a creative writing portion. So it was just like and like it was like a lot of my friends that came, um, you know, it was like probably like 10 to 15 kids. Wow. And this was like for a week and it was just so cool. Um, so you grew up in an artist commune, <laughs> <laughs> essentially. Yeah, it was like really incredible. And like, I, I guess like naturally rebelled against poetry for like the longest time because it was too close to me. And mm -hmm. I think in high school, you know, I went to high school at um, this all-girls school where my dad teaches. And so everyone knew my dad and they were like, oh, you know, you must be really good at English because like, you know, <laughs> Mr. Cardona is your father. And I hated that. Um, mm -hmm. So I just, I went to film. I started to just really love film, which like my dad also really loves film. Like all we watch at my house is like Turner Classic Movies like 24-7 um since you know as early as I can remember I remember seeing like parts of like movies when I was little yeah and just being really intrigued and then when I became a teenager and like my dad works at um Trinity University like part-time doing Upward Bound so he had access to the library I would just check out like I don't know six Criterion DVDs per week and then just watch them all on my like little tv in my room and like it's just like when this like whole world kind of opens up to you yeah, and you don't know anything about it and you're just like, oh my God, like this is amazing. Um, <laughs> that's what it felt like for so much of high school. And I wanted to be a film director so bad. Um, I wanted to go to film school, but was like too depressed to apply to like actual film school. So I was just like, you know what, I'm going to hold that off for a while. But um, that's like always been a part of me still. And like something that I like, pursued in in college me and my friend Laura um we started Chiflada Zine together but we also did a film together called Nick's Chicks on YouTube um and it's um about a girl gang because it was this was like 2013 and we like met on Tumblr but we like figured out that we both lived in San Antonio so we we're like oh let's just like hang out um and so we met up and we we're like okay what references should we like look towards so it was like a, a lot of like death proof vibes, um, a lot of um, faster pussycat kill kill, um, a lot of just like female centered films that were like kind of violent. And uh, we just like were like, yeah, let's do this movie to just like cast all of our friends. We can't pay them. So it'll just be like hanging out all the time. And I had my dad's old camcorder because we wanted like a kind of grainy quality to it. So I used that and then um, Laura and I wrote most of it. I think she wrote more than I did. I remember I wrote like a particular scene. It was like the Knicks chicks versus the, the gutter guys. <laughs> and the gutter guys were like this group of guys that were like 
just all scumbags and so like they all had like different names um I think like Tony Slime was one and like (laughs) they were all just like really misogynistic and so the whole film is about like revenge because they're basically like trash talking the Knicks chicks they're like oh they think they're they're a real gang they're not and so they come up with a plan to try to like lure one of them in and like humiliate him it was like a 15 minute film but I mean it took us like you know, a month to like shoot and edit. And like, we were all just like doing it out of just like the love of it. Like we didn't have any money or anything. Um, And it was so much fun. Like I would love to do that again. So bad. So, I mean, I don't know that that's all to say that like my household has always just like encouraged any sort of like artistic endeavor. And, um, even my extended family, I mean, there's like some musicians on my mom's side, a couple of teachers, um, even the people that like didn't pursue arts are like, you know, also creative as well in my family. And I think, you know, that's always influenced me too, is just seeing how they're creative in their like everyday life. My Thea Norma is like amazing at baking, but like she would never pursue that as like her actual profession. So I don't know. My family's full of people like that. Um, And I think like a big part of why I write or like why I believe in the power of writing is just like archiving these stories and details. I think so much archiving has has to be done in terms of like Texan writers, just like local writers in general. Um, So many like stories and poems that maybe had like one run and then, you know, that's it. Those are things that like need to be preserved and I feel like we need to like start looking to those those writers that are like lost or like not not heard of and like give them a chance to be published and remembered I think that's like super important and uh yeah I think like my family is just like they've always emphasized the culture but they're also like you know I'm like second generation or third generation I always get confused um so like I didn't learn Spanish but my parents, like, they speak it if, they, if like, someone else approaches them in Spanish, but they never, like, speak it to each other in conversation. Unless I was, like, little and they were talking about, like, Santa or the Easter Bunny, which <laughs> I quickly learned, like, you know, what they were talking about. But um, they have always still been, like, culturally proud. And I thought that was, like, really cool, too, that you can have both. Like, you can have, like, my, my father, he... He loves Polish poetry. He loves um, world cinema. He loves film noir. These are things that you would not expect someone who was born in like a small Texan town in like the 1940s to like love. I think like we just assume that people of like a certain background or race like can only like the things that like come from, you know, their own communities, which like you don't have to replace one with the other. I think that's what I learned from my family is like you can have both. You can like all of those things and also like be proud of who you are culturally and like what your background is. Um, I think so much of the time we like, you know, place those two things in a binary, like you have to choose between the two, but you really don't. And it's really liberating to like know that. And like my parents set a great example of doing that for me. I I was really hoping we would touch base on this. I would say that before your work, having so many cultural touchstones, but still having your own identity reminds me of Fernando's work 
and before Fernando, Fernando Flores, um, before I read Deaths to the Bullshit Artists of South Texas, I felt like there was not enough representation in first-generation American Latino and kind of being pigeonholed into being like, I have to love these, like, Hispanic things Mm -hmm. um, and feeling more in love with, like I mentioned earlier, like, I love that you love French New Wave because it feels like it gives me also permission to embrace things that are not Hispanic. Um, And it also gives me permission to embrace things that are Hispanic because I have an example of someone who contains multitudes. um, And yeah, I remember when I met you years ago, your style really inspired me. And I remember you, you would always wear a beret and I was like, I can't be Hispanic and like pull off a beret (laughs) and just be myself. And so something that comes off as off of you as a person is this like ability to be who you truly are while respecting your own culture and the culture of others and just being being anything in America is a very confusing place to be in, especially right now. But yeah, I remember reading Fernando's book and just being like, I can be a snob about, <laughs> about like classical music or, um, you know, surrealist artists. And then reading your book felt like it had that same mm. energy where it was like, you're just a person who comes from somewhere but absorbs Mm -hmm. everything that is right for them. So I hope that made sense. (laughs) Yeah, that does. I feel really honored to, I really like that parallel because yeah, thinking about Fernando's work too, you know, in that like short story collection, it really does show like the culture and like the kind of like language and conversations that like are present and actually do happen, but they just like aren't talked about ever um, or it's like not what we see or what even like editors push like writers of certain backgrounds to do Um, I think it's like an internal battle and also a very external one when it comes to like feeling pressure to be the representative for like your community or your culture I think I don't know who it was I don't know if it was Edwidge Danticat who said it but you know like I don't think when I come into workshop and like the white dude next to me is thinking like, does my poem like represent my community accurately? Like, are they concerned with those things? Probably not. Um, So why should I also be anxious about these things? It's like natural, I think, to feel them because it's just so like ingrained and I still struggle with it, but it's, it's really liberating to know that like, you can like play with all sort of things. You don't have to like stick to talking about tortillas in your poem um you definitely can if it's like appropriate I have a tortilla poem in this book but it's like you shouldn't feel pressured like you shouldn't feel like okay since I come from this background like I need to put this cultural signifier this one I need to write about like hot cheetos and I need to write about um you know Selena I I don't I don't believe in that I think you should like genuinely do what you like to do when it comes to poetry. If it's that, if it's like experimental work, like Monica Della Torre, then go for it. If it's like your genuine interest, I don't think that means that you're like being a traitor to your culture because there's ties to like 
experimentalism or whatever it is like that you can find in your own culture too when it comes to like movies and music in particular I mean that's always like been hard for me because I've been I mean in high school all I listened to was Radiohead Sufjan Stevens and like Belle and Sebastian um all very quote-unquote white artists but that doesn't mean that I'm like self-hating or like that I am trying to distance myself from my own culture because I was like exploring my identity. But um, now, you know, I recognize that that doesn't make me some sort of whitewashed person. You know, I have only DJed once. My friend Bonnie gave me like a guest spot. And I was like so anxious about like, oh my God, are people going to judge like what records I choose? Because it's not like all, it's not like Goombia or it's not like, you know, if I have like too many white artists, are they going to think that like, you know, I'm like a Malinche or something, um, which are like very irrational fears, but also very real. And I feel like in this book, like it's about having that like quilt of quilt of love for like the things that you love. Um, it's about like knowing that you can like both, you don't have to give up one for the other. And like, Mexican-Americans in particular love the Smiths. There's like a whole documentary about it and Depeche Mode. It's not like a new thing. It's like been, you know, present for a while. I think people are just, you know, finally seeing more representations of that currently, which is, you know, decades late. Um, But I mean, people have been doing this. (laughs) Yeah. And talking about what is or isn't your culture? Well, if you live in Texas, you know, like listening to Belle and Sebastian as a as a kid in high school is part of your culture too. And it totally makes sense that there's like this push to preserve a culture that you've come from or that your parents or grandparents have come from that is, you know, somehow disconnected now. And that's beautiful as well. And I feel like I, I feel that tension. It's like a positive tension between those things in this book. They are really quilted together, as you said, in that one's not trying to box the other one out (laughs) necessarily. They are just, they're coexisting because they coexist in you. They are part of you. And I think anytime anyone is ever trying to put limitations on poetry and Obviously, especially when it comes to your like racial heritage, that's especially bad. But no one should ever say that, you know, like that you have to write a particular way. And like you mentioned earlier, people talking about trying to write towards the universal rather than the specific. I think anytime somebody's trying to put a limitation on the way that you write, that's just a huge red flag. And there's there's some kind of problematic baggage there, I would say, always um, with the person who's who's like giving you that advice that really resonates with me too just in in seeing like in your work that like beautiful push and pull between all the different parts of the self and the different elements of culture that are there all together thank you yeah I feel like it is a very hard difficult balance to create and I think it took a lot of like internal struggle and just getting rid of that voice, which I don't even know if someone necessarily said the words to me, like, you need to write this poem, but it more so comes from a place of, like, it's, like, from both sides. It's, like, from, like, the the white academic side of, like, 
the expectations maybe that like you assume that they're going to make about your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also on like the communal side of like, well, you're writing about this and you're from, you know, you're from our community. Like, what are you some sort of like whitewashed, like gringa, you know, think you're better than us for not writing about, you know, these things. But it's like, I think I asked Ada Limon when she came to Texas State like about this and she was just like, you just need to write like what you want to write because you cannot please like either side, like both sides are going to be upset either way. Um, You're either going to like be too Mexican for like the academics who like want you to write like in a quote unquote universal way, or um, they're going to want more references from you to show where you come from or, you know, to like kind of have their token Mexican writer on their, you know, press list or, you know, you're going to displease people on the other side that, you know, you're like, oh, you know, you're writing about nature, um, which like Hanif Adura Club has like a great uh, title of a poem. I think it's like, how can you write about flowers in a time like this or something like that, um, which is all about just him being like a black man and like writing a nature poem. But like that, that can also be political. Ross Gay does it so well. I remember when he came to Texas State, some grad student said like, oh, I'm so glad that Ross Gay didn't, you know, read any poems about being Black because they were all like eco-poetic poems. And it's like just this idea that like, that you have to choose one or the other, like that you can't write an eco-poem that also has race in it. Like those can coexist. And I think, you know, there's a lot of great poets that do that, um, like Ross Gay and Ada Limon. I think the issue comes when you're writing for other people or like you have that so tied in your mind and it's just a matter of having to let go of that voice in order to free yourself and write what you want to write. Claudia, you're an inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) I know how cheesy that sounds, but it's very true. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I remember the meetings we've had before um, to talk about your chapbook and to just talk about poetry in general. I was just like left feeling so full and like satisfied but also just like starstruck because (laughs) I could listen to you talk about poetry all day um and it's always really fun (laughs) I'm honored I think it's just like pent up conversations that like I have not had with people since um both the pandemic and also like since not being around like a group of poets every Tuesday so I feel like like y'all want to talk about poetry like I am there and I will talk for like you know five hours so I'm ready <laughs> yeah and we'll do it on the podcast again too so we can have an excuse <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah thank you so much Claudia this has been really just revitalizing and we can't tell you how much we love your work um hopefully Hopefully you know by now, but we'll just keep telling you, and I can't wait for people to hear this. I think it's it's something everyone needs right now in our poetry community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really loved having conversations with y'all about poems and all sorts of things. Yay, you guys. Yay.